Okay, we continue in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 11 today, and uh, we're going we're gonna to look at the first half of that, um, of that chapter. Um, actually, we're going to skip verse 1 because that was kind of pulled into last week's text. So we'll look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. That's where we'll be today. I've entitled this sermon, Freedom in Worship. I wonder if you invited a church, uh, rather a friend to church today, or next week, or whenever, if you invited a, a friend to come to church with you here at Union Lake, and they were not somebody who regularly went to church, um, a, a co-worker or a neighbor that has, uh, doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, somebody that's unfamiliar with the Bible and, and Christian worship, really. I wonder if you invited a friend like that to church, what their impression of our worship service would be. If someone in our area who just happened in on this service, they've driven by a number of times and thought, I'm going to see what's going on there on a Sunday morning, right? I wonder um, how they might describe our gathering. I wonder if it could be reduced to a single word. What word might that be? Let your mind kind of run from word to word for a minute. Could it be reduced to a single word? I mean, not, probably not all together, right? But there, there is probably different ideas or thoughts or words that they might park on as they observed for the first time a Christian worship. Let me suggest to you that one possible word, or rather one word that they might ought to see or, or describe Christian worship as being, is this word freedom. Probably not the word that leapt into your mind. One word that ought to describe Christian worship is freedom. But maybe not in the way you, you might think I mean when I, when I use that word. Even the word freedom has a lot of different connotations and, and a lot of different th uh, things that, that come into people's mind when you hear the word. Uh, so let's turn to um, the text this morning, to God's word, and hopefully you'll see what I'm getting at by this weird introduction. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Get in the right frame of mind. Ask the Spirit to help you. The very God of the universe speaks in these words, friends. God's word reads like this. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven." 
For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God." Friends, that might be one of the toughest texts I've ever read out loud in this room. It's pretty difficult. It's, it is full of historical context, culture that we don't practice today. Um, there's lots of reasoning here that initially doesn't make sense as we read it. I, I, I trust you felt that when I read that out loud, unless you've spent some time looking at this text ahead of time. Nevertheless... This is God's eternal word for us. It is very wisdom. And the Spirit of God, I trust, will give us understanding as we start to walk through it and and, and explore uh, why it's arranged the way it's arranged and and the words that uh, the Apostle used. A couple of housekeeping things just to make sure we're finding or, or, or knowing where we're at in the book. He's written this, this letter to the Corinthian church, and our text actually marks a new section uh, in the letter. For a number of chapters, the apostle uh, has been dealing with how the Corinthians ought to behave as spiritual people out there in the world. But, but now he turns to the topic of how they ought to behave inside the church, particularly during worship services. And he's going to stay on this topic for, for a number of texts. Next, next text is going to be about celebrating the Lord's Supper. And then, then there's going to be a long text about um, using spiritual gifts within uh, uh, Christian worship. And so we start uh, a new section uh, in the letter today. Um, another thing to note is that verse 2 begins with Paul's commendation for the Corinthians. Did you see that there? Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. That's pretty out of place for this letter, isn't it? I mean, he has been taking them to the woodshed on issue after issue after issue on all of the ways they have not been living as spiritual people. He's been uh, correcting them. And although verse 2 commends them, he immediately, starting with verse 3, returns to correction. So that must mean there, that, there was, that, that the church was doing well in this area overall, but there was a, 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 a certain smaller group within the church that needed uh, to be corrected, for they were acting inappropriately in worship. 
So, okay, so that's just a little bit of housekeeping, a little bit of background for you so that we set our expectations for where this text, um, where we find this text. I hope to convince you of of the theme of the text, as I, as I set out to every week. A theme, I trust, that will be an encouragement to you to behave well, to, to approach Christian worship in a way that honors God and helps people. So this is the theme I hope to convince you of uh, from this text, that the freedom of Christian worship reveals the glory of Christ. The freedom of Christian worship reveals the glory of of Christ. That's, the, that's what we, we are going to set out to prove as we walk through this text. Freedom is that one word that I was asking you about that, that perhaps an unbeliever might think of when they came in and witnessed Christian worship for the first time. The one word that, that visitors might use to describe it. So imagine, if you will, that uh, I don't, we don't have them hanging today. Sometimes we have worship banners hanging behind me on either side. Imagine that there are two worship banners hanging up today, both of them with the same word, worship. The only thing is that, that this banner over here with the, word, uh, with, with the word justice, I think I said worship, with the word justice on it. The word justice on this banner has a different meaning than the word justice over here on this banner. And so I hope to walk through this text and think about these two banners. From the, from the eyes of, of the world watching the, the Christian church worship um, and ha- with this idea of justice. So let me, let me press forward to hope to bring some clarity to you and, and, uh, and a help in, in, in uh, looking at this text. The first banner refers to a freedom in the worship of God that the world cannot understand and so rejects it. It's this, this freedom that they, that they see, that they witness, but, that, but they can't grasp it. Christian worship is marked by freedom not only that's unknowable, but even more so, that is scandalous to the world. Christian worship is marked by freedom that is scandalous to the world. The, the head of every man, verse 3 says, is Christ. And the head of a, of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. What does this verse have to do with freedom? And, and how is Christian worship marked by freedom? And how is, that, how is that freedom scandalous to the world? That's, that's what we're trying to get at here. Well, first, sinners are free to worship a holy God because of the work of Christ. Did you hear me? Sinners are free to worship a holy God because of the work of Christ. Um, look again at verse 3 there. Notice that it, it begins with this idea of Christ being the head of man. But isn't it interesting that, that it doesn't say that the Son of God is the head of man, or simply the Son. It says Christ. That's His title. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's the title for the Messiah. The King who comes and saves. And it's there twice. Do you see it just in that, that first verse 3? The head of every man is Christ. And then at the end, he says, the head of Christ is God. Uh, and, and, and so we've got this idea of authority in this verse. Somebody's the head of somebody else. But we also have this idea that the Son of God, while He is the head of man, He is their Christ. 
He is their Savior. Paul deliberately uses that word Christ in, in reference to his relationship with man. The Son is in authority over man, of course, but in a way where he wants men to live with the fullness of joy and purpose that he brings to them. The relationship described is wrapped up in the Son of God, God having come as the Messiah in fulfillment of what God had promised as a king who would lay down his life in order to save sinners and bring them into a restored relationship, showing himself to be a king who loves to the utmost and is thus the perfect authority to submit to. Those who turn to Christ by faith, trusting in his death as their substitute, as the one who paid for their sins, for such men they are free to follow Christ with no fear of rejection later. They are free to worship a, a holy God with no fear that he, will ever, that he will ever pour out his anger on them in judgment. For the Son submitted to his Father when he came into the world to save sinners and satisfy his holy wrath, and he is therefore the Savior of the world. What a beautiful authority for men to submit to. The freedom found in those who are united to Christ by faith, who joyfully submit to Him, who, who, the, the one who submitted to His Father at the cross, such freedom is scandalous to the world, friends. This idea is ridiculous. It is unthinkable. To, to have this idea that God would come and die, a God who was bested by human powers was unimaginable in, in, in the world's eyes. Never mind a God who loved eternally and delighted in his enemies. But you know, Isaiah had, among others, had prophesied of the passion of the Christ. These are well-known words from Isaiah 53. The prophet said that he would be despised and rejected by men. He would be one from whom men would hide their face because he would be so grotesque in his suffering on the cross. He would be one who would be wounded for men's transgressions and even crushed in death for their iniquities. Nevertheless, this is scandalous to the minds of men. The, even the Jews recoiled at the thought of a Savior who would die on a criminal's cross, despite the fact that it was predicted in the, in the Jewish Scriptures. This is why they mocked Him uh, as He was crucified, as recorded in Luke 23 and verse 35. Recall, too, that a, a few weeks ago I told you about Corinth. Remember, it was a bustling uh, port town. In fact, there was a port on either side of it. And, 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 and lots and lots of, of, of commerce would, would go through this town. And with it, pagan worship was brought into Corinth. There were many, many pagan temples in Corinth and, and high places which are like you know, up on the side of a hill where pagan worship would take place, but there wasn't a formal uh, temple there. Lots and lots of pagan worship happened in Corinth, and pagan worship is not marked by the freedom of forgiveness and ongoing restoration. That was foreign to pagan ears. 
No, such a thought was shocking, unbelievable to Gentile worshipers. Pagan worship was based on the understanding that gods were fickle and easily angered and had to be had to had required ongoing sacrifices to try to try to reason with them so that they might not kill those who followed them by their crops dying or the sea raging and taking them down in a storm. Christian worship was based on God being a Savior who died for His people and bought freedom for them to be His children. And faith in His death, free men to bring God glory as they were created to do. This, this is a crazy idea to the world, though. It is scandalous in the minds of those who refuse to believe in Christ. But Christian worship was also scandalous to the world because of the freedom for all different kinds of people to participate in it. Even, friends, are you listening? Even women. That was scandalous back in that day. It isn't to us today. Worship in God's church includes all who come to Him through Christ. The New Testament highlights this fact over and over. All who repent of their sins and turn to Christ are restored to God and free to worship Him without restriction. It doesn't matter who they are. The demon-possessed and the lepers. The tax collectors and thieves. The poor and the blind. The Samaritans and the Gentiles. And yes, even women. And this fact... This fact is central to our text. Notice that Paul presupposes women are involved in the worship gatherings in Corinth. Do you see it there in verse 5? Every wife who prays or prophesies, and on he goes. He presupposes that women are doing that in the worship gatherings, that they are, that they are praying out loud and that they're even prophesying. And this was the consistent practice, friends, in all of the churches of God throughout the known world, as both verses 2 and 16 intimate. The Corinthians and all the churches that Paul and his team had planted around the Mediterranean had received the same instruction, that men and women both, in appropriate ways, were to be included in the regular worship of God. And so both of them prayed in the services. Both of them even prophesied in the services. Now, we understand what prayer is. I just led us in prayer a little while ago. But what is this idea of prophesying? That's a weird word. It's a weird word to say. What does it mean? Right? Well, um, there's a lot of opinions out there. There's not, a, there's not a, like a bold definition in the scriptures for it, but I think this one suffices for our purposes today. One writer puts it this way, prophesying refers to an individual sharing with others an encouraging insight that they sense God has spontaneously revealed to them right then. Okay? Okay. This, then, is one of the miraculous gifts of God that He gave to His people as the church was being established at the beginning. As the Word of God was being written and His church was being established and founded by the apostles, certain miraculous gifts were given during that time, and this, this idea of prophesying was one of them. Now, the fact that women were involved in such such beautiful parts of the worship of God's people seems commonplace to us today. I mean, Millie was just up here reading the Scriptures for us, for example. 
seems commonplace to us, but it would have been shockingly novel in the first century. Women were held in very low regard in society, in virtually every culture. They weren't seen as reliable witnesses in legal situations. Their participation in pagan worship was often relegated to serving as temple prostitutes. But in Christ's church... In Christ's church, men and women both are free to join in Christ's worship. Notice both were said to be praying and prophesying in the Corinthian church. Verse 4 says says one was praying and prophesying. Verse 5 says the other. And Paul issues no correction to that practice. Only Only about this idea of whether or not someone's head was covered or not covered when they were doing so. That's because everyone who follows Christ is of the same eternal value. As Paul would write in Galatians 3 and verse 28, all are one in Christ Jesus. And so all play a role in the beautiful church of the redeemed. Praise God. And while it is scandalous to the world, it magnifies the love of the Savior. The freedom of Christian worship reveals His glory. That was our theme. And it's seen in in this freedom, this freedom of, of sinners to relate and worship a holy God and that forever. And it's also seen in women participating in the worship of Christ. These things, these things were... These things were scandalous to the world, but they reveal the glory of Christ. The first banner then, this freedom, this word freedom on here, has that idea that Christian worship is marked, is, is marked by freedom that's scandalous to the world. But there is a second kind of freedom that worship of Christ ought to be marked by. It ought to be marked by. Tragically, it isn't always marked by it. But the second banner means Christian worship should be marked by freedom from scandalous practices that come from the world. Okay, so the, the first one is the freedom, uh, the freedom that's seen in Christian worship that is scandalous to the world as they view it. The second idea of freedom is the freedom from letting their scandalous practices in. So look at verses 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, a couple things. That's a strange couple of sentences, isn't it? In our ears. The first thing to do is decipher this idea of head. So, in verse 4, Man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, that is Christ. He said who the head of man was in verse 3, Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, which is her husband. Verse 3 says that. Okay, so keep that in your mind. Worldly practices in the church are scandalous and bring dishonor. And so Christian worship ought to be free from such things. Worldly practices are normally based on a perversion of truth. 
women are equally treasured by God. This is true. They play as crucial a role in the worship and functioning of the church and Christian families as men do. This is God's truth. But the world, particularly secular arguments for the equality of women here, secular arguments, the world says that Christians don't believe in the nobility and equality of women in God's eyes. This is perversion, but it's what, they, it's what they're selling. For example, the world says that men being in authority oppresses women and teaches that they are somehow of less worth than men. And so practice, the, the, the practice of the Greek culture to empower women in, in the face of this was to have them flaunt their sexuality and independence by refusing to wear a head covering. You see, wearing a head covering indicated that they had an authority in their lives, which were their husbands. So to be in public, not to mention in the public worship, without a head covering, would be for a wife to be flaunting that, to be running contrary to that, to be essentially drinking the world's Kool-Aid and bringing that practice into the church. Paul exposed the false thinking that the the practice was based on, of course, in verse 3. Look back at it for just a moment. This this is so important for us us to grasp. Look at these different head relationships. First of all, I want you to look at the arrangement of the three pairs. Look at it there in verse 3. It starts out with the relationship between man and Christ, and then it ends with the relationship of Christ and God, that is the Son and the Father. And in the middle there is the relationship between the wife and the husband. It's critical that you see that arrangement. The headship of husbands for their wives is sandwiched around Christ's authority over man and Father's authority over the Son. Paul lays out this threefold analogy. The man is the head of his wife in a similar way to how Christ is the head of the man, in a similar way to how the Father is the head of the Son. What is Paul trying to get across here? Consider that last pair for a moment. Dial in here. This is really important. You need this. Christ is absolutely equal in power and glory to the Father. The Scriptures proclaim this. It is the basis of our faith. But in the matter of salvation, Christ submitted to the Father in in, in going into the world to be born of a virgin, to take on the nature of a man, to live as a man under the law, and to die for sinful men in order to save them. Even though the Father and the Son are of equal worth, equal beauty, power, glory, nevertheless the Son submitted to the authority of the Father in the salvation plan. Do you see that? The Father and the Son are equal. And so, authority and submission does not impact that. The the, the fact that people take different roles does not mean they're unequal. The Father and the Son's relationship demonstrates this. It is the, the nail in the coffin to the perversion of what the world says. And so men are are likewise not of greater worth in their position of authority over their wives. 
in the church, men and women are absolutely dependent on one another also. As redeemed people, co-heirs of of Christ's promises, they serve one another in indispensable ways. This is even seen in God's plan and purposes in creating human beings in the first place. As an example, look at verse 11 there. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. They rely on each other. They were designed that way. That dependence brings trust and beauty as men and women worship together. The freedom of Christian worship reveals the glory of Christ. It puts His wisdom and love on display, and it shows that what the world is selling is ridiculous and false. But in Corinth, the church had given in to cultural practices involving these head coverings bringing scandal to their corporate gatherings for worship. Paul says in no uncertain terms that some in the church were worshiping in a way that brought dishonor to God, to their spouses, and even to themselves. Now, honor and shame played a huge role in that part of the world, as it does today, in fact. It greatly impacted how they viewed the world and their part in it. And so verses 5 and 6 use this language deliberately arresting their attention. You're shameful. You're bringing dishonor. It's grabbing them by the the shirt collar so that they'll hear what what Paul is saying to them. The opposite of shame, though, is glory. The opposite of bringing dishonor is bringing honor. Honor. The opposite of shame is glory. And all people, not just the Corinthians, were made to bring glory to God. Genesis says this very plainly. Not only the text that Millie read, but Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. Listen. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God, the glory of God, is in all people. The world is always trying to press its values into the church, though. Trying to teach them otherwise. The pressure never eases up. The worship of the saints is to be holy and beautiful and orderly and beneficial to all. It ought to be centered around the Word of God. The traditions that Paul spoke of earlier. The traditions delivered to the church by Christ and His apostles. The teachings and the way of living those those teachings out. But often we see the church sadly capitulate to the sinful demands of the culture, polluting the purity of their worship. I remember when I stayed in Chicago a couple of summers ago, I went out there, you, you might recall, for three weeks of a preaching intensive where they were pounding the bad practices of preaching out of me. Right? And every, uh, every morning I would go, if it wasn't raining, I would go for a jog. And, and uh, just as I, I think I mentioned, I went for a jog in London. I did so in Chicago. And I would see lots and lots of churches. I couldn't jog a couple of blocks without seeing another church. And what I started to see was this pattern of a number of churches that had signs out front with rainbows on them saying all were welcome. A clear indication that they were courting gay and lesbian and, 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 and trans people and, and telling them that they should come and they wouldn't be judged uh, in that church. These are churches that have compromised the Word of God. Seeing homosexuality as acceptable rather than wicked as the Bible clearly teaches. Perhaps you feel that pressure. 
Perhaps you feel that pressure at work to, to start to see those practices as okay because after all you've had to take so many sensitivity trainings so that you would come to that conclusion. Perhaps you feel that pressure to embrace what is scandalous to the Christian faith in order to appease people. The Corinthians had felt that pressure and some had succumbed to it in their worship practices. Now, the sinful practices that Paul described in our text are strange to our ears, as I've already said, because they were unique to that culture and that day. This text does not teach us specifically that, you know, you ought to wear a head covering and you ought not to wear a head covering. That was specific to that culture. Just as rainbows didn't mean to that culture what they do to us today, head coverings don't mean what they used to mean in the ancient Greek world. Some historical context will help you see this, I trust. In Corinth, influential leaders of pagan cults wore head coverings. The priests in those temples wore head coverings. People also that were wealthy and successful in society that attached themselves to those temples, they also would come, men, with head coverings. So for Christians to wear head coverings during the worship of Christ in that culture was outrageous. It equated the worship of the one true God to the worship of false gods and perhaps was, it was an attempt to flaunt even one's social status so that they would be glorified inside the worship of, of Christ. Both of these ideas were a blight on the worship of the Savior. It would be like me wearing a, a rainbow, uh, I don't know, cloak or something to indicate that we thought in this worship service that homosexuality was in fact okay. It would be like that. Also in that day, women wearing head coverings indicated that they were under the authority and protection of a man. So that was normal practice in, 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 uh, in, the, in the Christian church. Women, married women in particular, would wear their hair up with a, some sort of head covering, perhaps a veil of some kind, indicating that they, were, that they were united to their husband and that they were under his authority. Um, something maybe akin to a wedding ring today, but not exactly, because lots of people don't wear wedding rings. For a married woman, then, to have her hair let down and exposed in public, much less to, to be involved in the public worship of Christ in prophesying and praying with her head uncovered, would have been to embrace the sexual promiscuity of the culture. It, 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 would have been to, it would have been to indicate that she was not under anyone's authority and that she might even be available to someone who wanted her. Again, a shameful inclusion of the world's practices in God's church. So I hope you can understand now when I say that Christian worship ought to be free from the scandalous practices of the world. Head coverings don't normally go into that topic, that category for us, but it certainly did in that day. Well, Paul didn't just rail against them. He also called them to obedience. But what motivations does he offer, did he offer the Corinthians to live as spiritual people as they worship together rather than taking the, the sinful practices of the world into the church? 
Well, Paul reminds them that they were not meant to bring shame. That's not their purpose in this world but rather glory, and they should be motivated by the glory of Christ as they held out His worship in freedom to the world. And the first way Paul did this was reminding the church that the way you worship should bring glory to another. It should have another, a focus on another. Let me say it again. The way you worship, friends, should be, should, should be done so to bring glory to another. He, does this, he makes this argument in a very clever way in verse 7, so let your eyes fall down there. He says, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. That's one of those strange things I read at the beginning when I'm like, what is this man? If we're not careful, we will completely misunderstand his point. He doesn't mean that women are not the image and glory of God. That's not what he means. I mean, Genesis Genesis affirms that they are. What he means is that how you worship should point to the glory of another rather than yourself. Think through this with me. Some men were wearing head coverings to point to their so-called glory of either being inclusive to the world, pagan worshipers, or their own glory as being successful in the world, right? So, so, so that's why they were wearing head coverings. They were saying, see, I don't think I'm, I'm better than those other religions. I'm even wearing what they wear so they might think highly of me. Look at my glory of inclusion. They ought to have been pointing to the unique glory of Christ rather than trying to point people to their own glory. What about the women Some of them were refusing to wear head coverings to point to their so-called glory of being independent of their husbands, no matter what God's design. You might hear them saying something like, look at my uncovered head. I'm just like the men in this church, no different. I'm not under anyone's authority. They ought to have covered themselves. Because how they worship should bring honor to the husbands that God gave them. And ultimately, it brings honor to God who put the pattern of the relationship between the sexes together. That brings God glory. But Paul's emphasizing the importance for women to embrace this. The beauty of his design that they were made with the wisdom and giftedness that their husbands needed. Not what the world's selling. How we worship then, men and women alike, should be done so as to bring glory to another. It frees us from the false glory of the world that only wants self to be lifted up. It frees us to worship in a way that reveals the glory of the Savior and even His design for the world. In verses 8 and 9, Paul also reminded the Corinthians that their freedom from worldly practices should be motivated by embracing uh, God's design for complementary roles of men and women. I'm not going to take the time to talk about that today, but that's a, another argument he puts forward. And that's what the thing about the angels means, by the way. When, when women submit to God's design... In the church of the redeemed, even the angels are leaning in to see the glory of it. First Peter talks about that same kind of idea. Finally, even the natural world around us should motivate us to throw off worldly error in our worship. 
Even our observation of the world around us encourages us to submit to God's good plan, which sees differences in men's and women's roles. Look at verse 15 there. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Paul's not asking for the church of God to have a, a ruler to go around and say, oh, Russ needs a haircut there, or, or that gal over there needs to wear her hair a little longer. That's not the idea. The idea here is that everybody in the world sees the differences between men and women, despite this sinful and idiotic idea that gender is somehow fluid or changes based on the way you feel. Everybody in this world knows the differences. They are patently obvious, the differences between men and women. Nature even teaches us this. And so it makes sense then, even from nature, to have it be our instructor and have us submit to the roles that God designed us for in the church. We're free to, to live in that way, free to live in the way God designed us. Those who are united to Christ are no longer enslaved to what the world is peddling. Romans 6 teaches us this. We're free, friends. We're free from the way that we used to live. We're free from the way that we used to think, like the world thinks. Listen to it, Romans 6 here, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That is our body of sin that was always making us sin. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. A few verses later he says, You must consider yourselves therefore dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, the church of Jesus is free. Free from sin. Free from the constraints of sin. We're no longer locked up to think the way the world thinks. I know this is a hard text. I know it's a long argument. But I want you to think back to those banners. What should people see when they see the church of Jesus worship? They should see freedom. A couple of different kinds of freedom, though. They should see the freedom of sinners worshiping a holy God and that forever. They should see the freedom of everybody participating in the worship in appropriate ways, men and women alike. And that's scandalous to them, but friends, it brings glory to Christ. What he does to free us from our sin, what he does to make all of us one in Jesus is glory to his name. But there's this other banner over here, this idea of freedom that Christian worship ought to be free from, the, from those, those shocking practices of the world. We need to stand against them. We, we need to be distinct in our worship. We need to, we need to submit to our head. We need to, to be who God has designed us to be. So how do we apply this text? I mean, it's not going to be about whether or not we wear bonnets or baseball caps. Wearing one, uh, a head covering or not wearing one today no longer communicates anything about what we believe. So how can we worship in a way that holds out our freedom, that scandalizes the world, but that maintains our, our freedom from the world's scandalous views? How do we do that? How do we work that out? Well, this is a tough one. 
and I'm sure the Spirit of God is going to suggest some things to you. Here's a few that I thought of. We need to guard the worship of Christ as our substitute. You know, there, there are many, many Christian organizations and ministries and schools and, and, yes, churches that once believed that Christ literally was, was made to punish, to be punished, to suffer and die in the place of sinners. Many of those places no longer believe that. They, 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 there's this phrase out there, they, they said the, the father is engaged in some kind of child abuse of the son, if that were true. Friends, if Jesus didn't suffer, then we're all dead in our sins still, and we can anticipate the suffering of, of, of the punishment of God for our sins. So we need to guard the worship of Christ as our substitute. We need to guard that gospel that is an offense to the world, but brings sinners freedom and forgiveness and eternal life. So we need to be all about Jesus all the time, friends. I trust that will be the, the, the flavor of our, of our worship services. We also need to guard against worldly philosophies working their way into our worship, like placing a value on those who are rich and successful in the world rather than those who are humble and faithful. This warning is all throughout the New Testament. Again, look at the book of James. We need to, we need to guard against worldly philosophies who point to their own glory rather than Christ's glory. You ever think that way? You ever think more highly of yourself than other people in the church because you're more successful, have more money, have a better job than them, those sorts of things? Have a higher position in church even? We need to slay those things. We need to embrace the equality of our sisters in Christ and encourage them to participate in the public worship and in our ministries. God has given us a treasure trove of help in the ladies in our church. We ought to value them. We ought to place, place great value on them and encourage them in their roles in the church. Now, there, there are appropriate roles and inappropriate roles. The, certainly, God has restricted the office of pastor to men, but that does not mean there aren't wonderful and, and, and uh, crucial ways that women need to serve in the church as well. Finally, Christian wives need to behave in a way that helps their husbands lead well. They need to behave in a way, particularly in the public setting of the church, that encourages them to be the leaders that they were designed to be and not seize opportunities to serve in ways that undermine his leadership. We see this in the church. We see it in the world, certainly, and that's a, that's a practice that slips in. So, sisters in Christ, think through how God would have you point to the glory of another rather than yourself. And so, pass on things that maybe you need to encourage your husband to do, and things like that. Well, there could be other things. But ask the Spirit of God to help you make those applications. Think through. This is God's Word for us. He wants to shape our church, guard us from sin, build us up so that the freedom that is seen in our worship would bring glory to Christ. Think for a few minutes about, the, about these things. Reflect over the Word of God and ask the Spirit of God to um, impress some things upon you.